So, if you have $4,500 in a couple of weeks, you could see, you say, okay, you, start, you lost me on the first one. But, <laughs> but if you had $4,500 in a couple of weeks and you would like to see some of the most beautiful scenery in the world from the comfort of a luxury train, where's Paul? Did Paul leave? Oh, oh he's sitting, you're sitting in the wrong place. <laughs> I lost, because I thought of Paul. There is a 14-day railroad tour in China and Tibet called Across the Roof of the World. Okay? This, this thing is available right now. I mean, as in, you could, book, you could call and book this ride to go this month. It's, it's maybe the first month. I, I didn't, couldn't tell for sure from the thing, but, but it, takes, it costs $4,495, and it takes you from Beijing right across the base of Mount Everest uh, and, and, uh, and, and a lot of sites in between. And they're booking seats now. You can go this month. To build this track, they had to tunnel through mountains. They had to bridge gulfs and chasms and gullies and whatever else you have it. They had to build track on permafrost, which is inter- an interesting dilemma because the friction of the wheels on the track builds up enough heat to thaw permafrost. So I'm not sure, I, I have no idea how they did any of this stuff. Uh, and when you, when you think, of, I, my first thought was, well, they did this across the Rockies in, you know, in the 1800s. What's the big deal? Well, you know, Denver is the mile-high city. This is the two-mile-high track, <laughs> okay? It, it reaches as high as 1,300 feet in places. By, by comparison, Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs is 14, not 1,300, 13,000. Pikes Peak is 14,000 feet. So this is like almost the top of Pikes Peak. I think Mount Rainier is a 14,000 foot mountain, isn't it? Yeah. And so this is almost that high this thing is, is going across. Uh, and, and in 2014, China signed an agreement with Nepal and they expect the railway to reach Kathmandu in 2024. And I just like that because I like the sound of Kathmandu. But, but also at that point, they're pretty much through the Himalayas. There's a little bit left, but not much. And they're most of the way through. This is relevant. <laughs> In today's message, we're going to see an army of 200 million people. And, and as we do this, uh, you go, where does an army of 200 million people come from? <laughs> and, and, and a train is a very efficient way to move large numbers of people and equipment. And you go, ooh, this is interesting. On the other hand, I'm going to argue that it's not China, but <laughs> or at least not only China. Anyway, aside from looking at military possibilities, there's a lot to be said in this, pa- this, this passage today, Revelation chapter, chapter 9, verses 13 to 21, is about war. It's about war uh, in this time of the, the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, but I'm not reading it to talk about war. Even though there's going to be a lot of talk about war, there is an application here that is very relevant to us today, and it has to do with the stubbornness and sinfulness of man. Or let me rephrase it, the sinful stubbornness of man or the stubborn sinfulness of man, our absolute determination to be sinful, uh, to reject God. Revelation 9, 20 and 21, let me read those two verses for you first. Say this, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. 
tells us in spite of the suffering and death that goes on, uh, uh, brought about by this warfare, man refuses to give up his idols and his sins. He refuses to repent. Okay? So we're going to look at this passage today. And I poured myself a glass of water, and I'm going to use it. Okay, so, uh, so we're going to look at this war. This is the, this is the sixth, sixth angel blows his, his trumpet. So the six trumpets, if you, you know, to get back in track, there were six, seven seals. Now there are seven trumpets. We're up to the sixth trumpet. Uh, we've just looked at the locusts. When I say just, I mean, you know, before Christmas stuff. Uh, and, and so it's, it's been a little while. Verse 12 says, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. This is the second of these last two woes. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying be, uh, to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So we have these four angels at the great river Euphrates, and the, the, the angel is told to release the four angels that are at the, 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 the Euphrates River. Okay, now when we hear about angels being released, angels who are bound at, at the great river Euphrates, usually when we think of angels who are bound, we're not thinking of the good guys. We're thinking of the bad guys. Okay, we, we, excuse me, we never read of good angels being bound, but we do read of demons being bound. If we were to turn left in your Bible just a little bit, just before Revelation, you have the book of Jude. Jude, verse 6, says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left that proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Turn left a couple more pages, and we're in second, or, uh, second Peter, yeah, second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, telling basically the same thing. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. And we find that God does bind demons. He does bind sinful angels. Uh, these angels are, are probably demons who are bound, uh, for some reason, at the Euphrates River. Uh, well, I should say for some reason. They're bound specifically for this reason. It's very clear. There's, there's no options here. And these are particularly fierce and warlike beings. These are not the kind of demons who are interested in uh, 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 possessing a person. You know, they're not interested in, in possessing a person or inhabiting a body. They want to cre- create world war. The, these demons love war. They want to set the world at war. And it's really interesting when we look at this, because he says, he blew his trumpet, the, the, here's the message, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And there's a lot of significance in that when we look at the number four, and we look at where they are at the river Euphrates. First of all, when you hear four in terms of worldwide, you the four corners of the earth. We have north, south, east, and west. We think of four directions. And there are four angels bound at the river Euphrates. And, and it... And it uh, and that's the first piece of this. Uh, and the second is, is uh, well, let me say, four directions going out from there would indicate radiating in, in all directions, right? In all directions to all the world, okay? And then the second thing is, is that they're at the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates is hugely significant when we start looking at it in terms of Scripture. The Tigris and Euphrates are the two rivers that form Mesopotamia. In case you don't know, Mesopotamia is a Greek word that means between rivers. Okay, So between rivers is Mesopotamia. That's what Mesopotamia is, this land between these two rivers. It is the fertile land. It is the good land. Okay, It is... It is uh, it's like two fingers. In fact, it's, it, it kind of looks like that, except this finger's longer. I have to do that, I guess. And it comes down into the, the, the upper end of the... Uh, the uh, 
Persian Gulf and down into the Indian Ocean. And, and the Euphrates is the western of those two. If you look at your Bible map of those places, it's the western of those two rivers. It's longer. The, the, the Euphrates runs uh, from, the, from the northeast or the northwest and runs down. The Tigris runs almost straight south uh, and, and comes down that way. And, and so there's those two rivers. And, and when we think of them, the, think of them in the Bible, there's a lot of things you could think of. For instance, you could think of the Garden of Eden. Okay, the, the, one of the first rivers ever named in the Bible is the Euphrates. It's actually, I think, the third. Uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 2, verses 10 and 10 through 14, we read of these rivers. Uh, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the land of that gold is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So we find the Euphrates as a location for the Garden of Eden. And, and it's kind of interesting as we look at those descriptions of the rivers running around the whole land of Havilah. Who knows what that is? Cush, you generally think of Africa. You go, wow, this is a big garden. Uh, you know, it's hard to know for sure. But we find the first place we think of is, is, is uh, the Garden of Eden. And it's kind of fascinating to make that contrast that it is the place of creation and now it is the place of destruction. We find it in, in Genesis, created good. We are created where everything is good. And we find it now where everything is bad and being destroyed. We find, again, the river Euphrates. Uh, the, the Euphrates River is associated with the city of Nineveh that we know for Jonah being going and preaching repentance because the people were so sinful. And, and we, we, we could think of that story, and we think, well, Nineveh repented. They did, but what you don't know is that the books go Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And I, if you don't know it, Nahum is also about Nineveh. Because after they repented at Jonah, they unrepented. <laughs> and God destruct, destroyed them in Nahum. Okay, that's what, that's what the book of Nahum is about. And so the, river, the, the, Tigris, or the Euphrates River goes high up to, to Nineveh. Babylon. Farther south, or actually the Nineveh is up on the Tigris. Babylon is down south on the Euphrates. And so we have this place. It's very rich in Bible history. It is, it is a, a very significant place. Uh, it, it seems to indicate something beyond Israel. In fact, if we think of it geographically, uh, um, it has, has a lot of other significance. Uh, the Tigris and Euphrates River are to the Middle East or to the East what the Mississippi River is to the United States. It is a dividing between sides. And so you hear they'll say, west of the Mississippi, you know, this is the biggest, we're the only place, we're the only, the only town with a team uh, named the Gorillas west of the Mississippi. How many of you have heard that before? Okay, that's what I've heard. I believe it. I've never run into anyone else probably wearing gorillas. You know, it's just, we, we, we're it. And why we're it, I don't know. Uh, but but uh, apparently there's somebody east of the Mississippi who also are gorillas. And, and so, uh, you know, Mississippi is a dividing line. And it makes sense it's a dividing line because it runs north and south across the whole country. And, and you have to cross the Mississippi. I think, how many of you here, I've crossed the Mississippi. Anybody else driven across the Mississippi? Yeah, it's like... It, yeah, gobs at times because you're from Missouri or Minnesota. St. Paul. Paul. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, of course, it's, how big is the Mississippi up there? I've walked across the Mississippi. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I thought you were just spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, that's what the Tigris and Euphrates are there. In fact, uh, one of the books I, said, I, I read on this said that this is, this is the dividing line between the Mideast and the Far East. And you look at it and you go, I never thought of it that way before. I never thought about there being a dividing line. I just know, you know, you get to a certain point in your Far East and a certain point they call it Mideast. And, and, and I don't know about Near East or, you know, whatever it is. But, uh, and, and I would have thought, well, it seems like it should be beyond India. But India is its own separate thing. I don't know. I had this long conversation with, with the Wanlings about it. And uh, I don't know if we made any progress. Uh, but, but these rivers are to, to, the, to, the, to the east, what the Mississippi is to America. They're dividing line between two things. The promised land, I don't know if you know this, the promised land was supposed to reach as far as the Euphrates River. And, and if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible maps, you go, eh, Israel doesn't go that near that far. Well, it did on occasions. Uh, in in uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, I'm just going to read a few different passages here, uh, different times in Israel's history. Israel was a country, you know, when we recognize that we're talking about thousands of years here, and we remember how, for instance, the borders of the United States have shifted in the last 100 years, or 200 years, you go, wow, there's been a lot of change. Well, that happened in Israel too, and the borders were moving around. They had a lot more time to do it. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8 The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to their neighbors in the Arabah and the hill country in the lowland and in the Negev by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. He says, take this land as far as the Euphrates. He says this in Deuteronomy before they enter the promised land at all. Uh, If we move, we we could read another in Deuteronomy, but I'm going to skip to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua, where they're entering the land. Joshua chapter 1, the first four verses of the book. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will rest a tread upon I have given you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the east, going down, uh, sea going down to the sun shall be your territory. So we find again, he talks about the river Euphrates being one of the borders of Israel. Solomon's rule, I'll just read one more, in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 9, we find where they effectively ruled over the land as far as the Euphrates. Second Chronicles chapter 9, verses 22 through 26. I find the books quick. I find the numbers slow. Second <laughs> uh, Chronicles chapter 9, verse 22. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to, clear his wis- to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and of gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, as much year by year. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his horses. They're just talking about how great he was. 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And he ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And so they're showing that, that they effectively ruled, not, they, they ruled not by displacing the kings, but by ruling over the kings. Uh, they ruled as far as the Euphrates River. That was to be the dimensions of the, Euphrates, of, of the, the promised land. Another great empire, not uh, uh, 
geographically much larger than Israel, also ended at the Euphrates River, the Roman Empire. And you start going, wow, the Euphrates River is an end. It's a border. You know what Euphrates River meant to the people of Israel? It was the end of civilization, apparently. It was the end of their part of the world. Beyond that is another part of the world. Euphrates River, these angels are situated just beyond the land that made up Israel or ever was part of Israel. And it was the entrance to the rest of the world. And so at this place that is the entrance to the rest of the world, four angels are let loose to declare war. Okay? So you see what I'm saying here is this is not a small war. This is not a localized war. This is a war starting and and including the entire rest of the world. And and the the numbers are going to back this up. Uh, And we'll we'll come back to that. But verse 15, back in Revelation chapter 9, in verse 15, we find that these angels are here for this very specific purpose. These fallen angels who have been been bound here were bound here not just accidentally or coincidentally. Oh, hey, they're there. Let's use them. They were bound there for this very purpose. Chapter 9, verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. I mean, they were there for that very specific purpose. Four angels. Everything here is specific. Everything about this is very clearly detailed and listed out. Four angels at the Euphrates for this day, month, and year to kill one-third of mankind. All those things are laid out. This is not a chance occurrence. This is not a coincidence. Even in this chaos, God is in control of what's happening. Now, the armies aren't going to know they're fighting at the will of these angels. They're not going to say, an angel told me to come and fight this war. They're going to think it's their own idea. Okay? The angels may not know they're doing God's will. These are fallen angels. I don't think they sat and read the book and say, hey, let's be those guys. Right? I think, they, they just are, I think they, they're going to be doing what they want to do because they're powerful, evil angels, and they love war. They hate people. They love war. I think that's what's going on here. God's people who realize God's word will realize that even in the midst of this most horrible event the world has seen since the flood... Uh, that God is in control. And it may seem surprising to think about it this way, but one-third that are going to be killed is mercy because it is a limit. No more than one-third are going to be killed. And, and one-third is going to be killed for a reason, because it leaves two-thirds, right? It leaves two-thirds who should do what at this point? Repent. At this point, those two-thirds should look and say, this is horrible, what shall we do? Remember our scripture reading where, where, the, where the people looked at Peter and said, what shall we do? They, said, they were saying, oh no, what you've just said is true. We are bad people, we deserve to be punished. What should we do? And Peter's first word, very first word out of his mouth was repent. Repent. Uh, and, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It, 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 they, they, they are looking for a response, and there is a response that should come. And what we find here is they refuse to repent. You go, what is wrong with you? The answer is you're human. Okay? That's, uh, anyway, uh, the third is, is mercy. There, there are three sets of sevens here, right? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls, and not to mention uh, seven thunders. Uh, oh, I don't have my pointer up here. I'm going to have to do this without a pointer. That's going to be so hard. Could you guys put my picture up? Sound room is 
is on track. Oh, there you go. Okay, so this is just a comparison. Sometimes, and you will hear this if you look at the seven, the, these, these points of revelation at some point, that someone will say, well, these are the same thing repeated in different ways with different emphasis. And they're not. And, and I'm going to demonstrate that, I think. The, the first one is clearly different. I mean, it's just the white horse is the Antichrist, the red horse is war, the black horse is famine, the pale horse, we have the souls under the altar crying out, how long, O Lord? And it just doesn't jive with the other two at all. But the next two, as you look across, there is some similar things. The, the trumpets uh, to the sea turn into blood. By the way, I love Revelation 10, 3 to 4. Uh, Revelation 10, 3 to 4, let me just read that real quickly. Uh, a giant angel, massive angel, verse 1 tells us, uh, is going to come down. He says he had a little scroll in his hand. Let's see. I turn off my light and then I try to read. Uh, verse 3, And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have written and do not write it down. And you go, What? Yeah. <laughs> He clearly just said something important. And then he said, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> and you go, what is that about? Well, we'll actually look at that next week because we'll be in chapter 2. Oh, I have a pointer. Good. Thank you. Robert is my best friend. Okay. So, so Revelation, I, I just love the fact, by the way, that there are seven things, seven significant things that we don't know. Because when we think we know this book... We have to admit, okay, well, we don't know it all. <laughs> we know parts of it. We can be familiar, but we have to start out with the fact that there's big things happening that we don't know what they are. Okay? But the fiery sea, fiery mountains thrown into the sea, and a third of sea life is destroyed. The second sea life is turned, turned to blood. Wormwood makes a third of the water bad. Fresh water turned bad. The sun, moon, and stars are darkened. The sun gives out scorching heat. It, we kind of lose something here with the locusts. Uh, but here's the, the, where we are. The, the sixth seal, or the sixth trumpet... An army of 200 million men, or 200 million soldiers, and a third of the people die. And the sixth bowl of wrath, armies from the east gather for war. And, and what we sometimes do with this is we take and we say, 200-man army comes from the east. And, and here we start saying, I think these are the same thing. They sound so similar. And, and, and that's why we look at this and we say, China. Uh, China, and, and that's why I read that train thing, even though I think it may be a factor in this war and, and in the Armageddon war to follow, but uh, I don't think that this is saying it's an army of 200 million people from China. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain that some more. And in both these, we have the victory declared. But the big thing is the limit here, the limit of a third, whereas this is uh, inclusive. Is that the word I want? Inclusive, everything. <laughs> you know, that, that, is, that is complete. That's the word I want. This is complete. This is a third. And what's happening is the difference is, is when he says that at the end, and at the end of chapter 9, that they refused to repent, it's because they were supposed to repent. They were supposed to get the message. They were supposed to understand and repent, but they did not. But that's why there's a third here, and that's why there's not a third here. But that this is complete, because this is worldwide. This is everybody. This is, he's limiting it to a third. No matter what else goes on, not more than a third are supposed to die at this point uh, and won't die. And so, so the seven are not the same thing. There are some problems as I looked at that. But the issue is the issue of scope of how many people die in these things, of how large and vast they are, is, is very significant. It matters. If we skip ahead for a minute to chapter 16, 
verses 12 to 16. Uh, and we're looking at the seven bulls now. The sixth angel, the one that goes with the armies, armies from the east. With the sixth angel, the sixth angel poured out his bull on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the... Uh, it goes on, but... Um, talking about the demons, but, but I just need the one verse to make the point, is that it is talking about kings from the east coming out. And they're coming out, and we have that deal of, of drying up the Euphrates River. And we look at the, the similarity, and we, we can think for a minute, we see the armies from the east, we see the Euphrates River. This is the war they call Armageddon. Uh, it, because, if, as, again, as we look ahead uh, to chapter 19, verses 19 to 21, we read about what happens from that war. 1921 says this. Excuse me. And the, oh, and the rest were slain uh, by the sword that came down from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds of the sea, or all the birds of the, were gorged with their flesh. <laughs> Basically, everybody dies because Jesus kills them uh, in war with, with these people. It's the war of Armageddon. It's, it's, it's not a third die. It's everybody dies. Uh, and, and so it's clearly not the same one. So this limit of a third is that so people can learn a lesson and repent. Okay, but we still have to read about this war itself, which actually is almost uh, anticlimactic. There's not a whole lot to say about it. It's just a description of what happens. Uh, chapter 9, verses 16 through 19. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Okay? It's very significant that he heard the number. He doesn't pretend to count 200 million people. He doesn't estimate. <laughs> well, they covered this much ground. There must have been 200 million of them. How many of us would have a lot of confidence in that? If I said, you know, it's like a kid who says, man, there were a bajillion mosquitoes out there. You know, and we go, okay, you know, and, and 200 million, if he just says, uh, I saw and there were 200 million, we'd all kind of go, okay, we don't know what he saw, but it wasn't 200 million, except he says, I heard the number. He was told the number, 200 million. So it's a real number. Uh, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode upon them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. Mouths, for the power of the horses, is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And you go, okie dokie. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because, again, I, look at, I try not to wing this too much, and I look at the commentaries to see what they say, and the commentators are going, this clearly isn't a picture of modern warfare. And I'm reading it, and I'm going, man, that's clearly a picture of modern warfare. But, but seen through the eyes of someone who had... I mean, in, in the day when, when John wrote this, a long-distance weapon went like this, yeah. right? Or, or maybe you launched the catapult, or you did a sling, you know, and threw the rock at the giant. Yeah, the guy was a thousand years before this, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That was their, their, their version of a long-distance weapon. They wouldn't know a bullet. They wouldn't know a tank. They wouldn't know a cannon. They wouldn't know artillery. Yeah, they wouldn't know ro rockets, scuds. <laughs> you know, they, they wouldn't know any of those things. And so whether he was shown actual modern warfare, and that's how he described it, or he was shown things that looked like that, it still represents, to, to, to me, I have no problem looking at that and saying, that's clearly modern warfare. Okay? Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't see the difficulty in seeing that. It just jumps off the page to me. 
it's describing modern warfare. Um, but he doesn't say uh, that these armies, this army of 200 million, came from the east. He just makes that comment about the Euphrates River. And that's it. You go, okay, why is he not saying they're from the east? They're, well, because he's not talking about, I, I think, and I can't prove this, I think he's not talking about an army. I think he's talking about the armies that go to war. The armies that go to war total 200 million people. But, but even then, we're still just scratching the surface. Okay? Uh, 200 million could represent all the armies there, but as he describes the war, uh, i got to skip down to my... You remember my numbers I was playing with the other day uh, when I was saying, if there are 8 billion people in the world when, when this thing starts and a quarter of them die, there is then 6 billion people left? And the seven seals left a quarter of the people gone, so there's six, mil six billion people left. And now we have a third of them dying, which, leaves, which means two billion people are going to die. Okay? Assuming those numbers are anywhere remarkably, uh, remotely close to accurate, and if this thing happens in the next 15 or 20 years, they're remotely close. Uh, and and, and uh, if that works, then the number of people who are going to die in this war is not 200 million, it's 2 billion. So the 200 million fighting are going to result in the death of 2 billion. It's not simply soldiers shooting and killing other soldiers. It's not tanks shooting and destroying other tanks. It's people killing people. And one-third of the world is going to be killed by one-thirtieth of the world. So this is not uh, the, the war where the, the tanks are in battle in the field and killing each other, although that will probably happen. But this is a war where cities are being destroyed. Not just cities destroyed as in the buildings are destroyed, but people are destroyed. And, and large cities are being... What words would you use? What weapons describe that? Right? He is talking about a horrible warfare that extends far beyond this battlefield that, if this was to happen at the Euphrates River. Right? He, and there's no mention of this invading Israel at this point either. Uh, and so I think, I think he's describing a world war with terrible catastrophe, terrible conflicts, cities being wiped out so that two billion people are killed, roughly, by the, through the fighting of the armies of 200 million. If it was merely the armies killing each other, if they all died, there's only 200 million that went. It's not a third of the world, it's a 30th of the world. It doesn't work. Only way this works is if there are huge numbers of, of civilian or non-combatant deaths. This is, this is a horrible, horrible war. The angels are let loose from the Euphrates, but this war has to be worldwide for those kind of numbers to make sense. For, for a third of the world to be destroyed. So, so I think it's much more than that. And, and by the way, Everything I've said to, to, to argue or to, to create my position that I think this is not just an army from China, in, in, even though it's fun to talk about that train <laughs> uh, and, and all that, uh, you can hear all that and you can go, man, I think you are so dead wrong. You know, and, and actually, that's nothing but fun to debate. I mean, that, that, well, here's my argument. You heard my arguments. Now let me hear yours, and I'll tell you why you're wrong, you know, <laughs> because that's the way I like to debate, you know, uh, and, and then you can tell me I'm an idiot, and, and then we'll both walk away happy because, you know. But the conclusions that he comes to, regardless of how this war works out, are not up for debate. People refuse to repent. 
isn't there some point at which you call uncle? I mean, when I was a kid, this is literally, I mean, I, I was always fighting, if not with my brothers, with kids around the neighborhood or kids I didn't know, it didn't matter. And, and, and a standard practice was to get somebody down, pin them down, lock their arm up, and just keep pushing until they called uncle. I am so stinking stubborn. I would, I would reason in my mind, they actually don't want to physically hurt me. They just want to make me give, so I'm not going to because I'll be okay. <laughs> I can handle the pain. And then they'd convince with the pain until I finally said, okay, uncle. <laughs> because eventually, even if they're not going to actually break your arm or wrench it out of socket or something, you don't enjoy pain, <laughs> right? And so you say, uncle. It, even Steve will at some point call uncle. <laughs> at what point do you call uncle? Do you say, at what point do you say, I give. I get the point. I understand. How much do you have to love the work of your hands, right? What did he say? The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues do not repent of the work of their hands. How much do you have to love the work of your hands that you say, no, I won't give them up? How much do you have to love worshiping demons? How much do you have to love idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. But they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Because they loved them too much. They valued them too highly. And they would not say they were wrong in any of those things. The only thing wrong would be the people who would say those things are wrong, those intolerant people. At some point, don't you say in the face of God, those intolerant people are right? What do you do? Do you say, God, you're so intolerant? (laughs) He is, by the way. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 6 says, by the way, not, not these aren't the words he says, but he says very clearly. Nothing has changed. People have not changed. People are the same as they've always been. If you're not familiar with Isaiah chapter 1, you might be surprised how this book starts. Because we're familiar with certain parts of Isaiah. We're familiar with, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We're familiar with, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. We're familiar with, he was like a, like a lamb. He was led to the slaughter, like a, a, a sheep he did not. I can't think of the words right now. Isaiah chapter 1 says this. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but, my, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. He goes on and he describes it more. He says, where else could I hit you that I haven't already hit you? What punishment can I give you that I haven't already given you and you still won't repent? That was Isaiah 700 years before Christ. We're living 2,000 years after Christ, the time of when this is going to happen. 
you know, I think is in the not-too-distant future. Maybe I'm wrong, but the, what we find is that human nature hasn't changed. What is human nature? Human nature is stupid. I, mean, I don't know how else to describe it. At what point do you not say, Uncle? At what point do you not say, Enough, God, please, I will yield to you. The solution is not found in fighting God, but embracing him. Let's go back one more time to Acts chapter 2. And, and here's an interesting question. Which is more remarkable? The people in Isaiah that did not repent or the people in Jerusalem that did? And they devoted... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped the wrong place. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord your God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized were added that day about 3,000 souls. What is more remarkable? The 3,000 or the rest? It should not be remarkable when people repent and turn to God. But apparently it is more remarkable to repent than to refuse to repent. Human nature does not want to repent. Human nature does not want to say, I have done wrong, I have been wrong, I have followed wrong. Human nature says, no, I'm going to stick with what I've been doing. I'm going to say that what I'm doing is right, whether it is or not, if it, whether it costs me or not. If, if people made sense, it would not be remarkable to repent. It would, just, it would be a no-brainer, because it is. It's so obvious. Why does God want you to, say, want to, want you to admit you've done wrong? Because you've done wrong. <laughs> He's not trying to get you to admit a non-truth. <laughs> Repentance is nothing but acknowledging the truth. That's all it is. These people at the end of the world, one-third of the population has died in a horrible world-scale war like the world has never seen. It's seen destruction like that before. It's the flood. But it's never seen war like this before. And they do the most predictable thing, the most sadly and oddly predictable thing. They refuse to repent. And I don't know how to put that stubbornness into words, but I can certainly understand it because I'm a human too. And this is just part of human nature. We share this trait. As, as I talk about my stubbornness, probably some of you are saying, oh yeah, let me tell you my story. <laughs> because you're as bad as I am. Might be embarrassing to admit that. Repent. In spite of human nature, you have the ability to repent. And I'm not saying everybody here needs to. But repentance is not a trait we simply call the unsaved to. Saved people sometimes need to repent also. Because saved people do this unusual thing, sin. <laughs> and sometimes we hang on to our sin. And sometimes we value our sin. And sometimes we realize what God's will is and we choose to hang on to our sin anyway. You have the ability and you have the responsibility to repent. Beat the sin. 
Repent of it. Turn to Christ. And if you have not done this before and have not received eternal life, you can. All you have to do is admit that you've done wrong and ask Jesus to save you. And, and like I say, that shouldn't be hard because you've done wrong. It doesn't make you unique. <laughs> There's no one here who's going to go, oh. Because whether you know it or not, we all know it already. <laughs> if you need to, repent and turn to Christ even now. He will give you eternal life. Faith is the victory. Beating God is not the victory. Faith is the victory. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you give us opportunity to repent. And I thank you for the, it, the fact that in your mercy, you are long-suffering and have not destroyed us already. Lord Jesus, I ask that as much as we are as human as everybody else, you died to save humanity. Give us the courage and the honestness and the faithfulness to acknowledge our sins and to turn to you. We pray in Jesus' name.